Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Berg Jarvis, and I am really delighted today to be sitting down with Manga Sangwon Pang. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I want to read folks a little bio that I have on you so that they can get as excited as I am about the conversation that we are about to have. So Manga is an artist, healing practitioner, and founder of Bossy, a digital space that focuses on the end-of-life topics such as grief, loss, and death while providing services and offerings that renew our engagement to life. Her life and death work is guided by her Asian last name, which means light of the full moon. Light Mangda's work has been featured in Vogue, Bridie, New York Mags, Curbed, Chakuna Institute, and more. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I usually start the podcast by asking folks, how do you come into the world and the work of grief and loss? Yes, I describe it sometimes almost like a rite of passage because I didn't grow up dreaming about doing grief or death work. That is for sure. Um, Really, I got into this as many others have through my own experiences with loss and grief. And, um, you know, the more that I kind of recall and reflect on my own story, the more I see all of the pieces that have led up to this work. And in 2018, I ended up helping my mother pass and Honestly, everything that could have gone wrong in terms of navigating these end of life systems, not having any family with me, really going at it alone, um, catapulted me into this whole new experience. I had a friend named Nikla, who later on, she said, you know, some of the things that you're describing, it's death doula work. And I'd never heard of death doulas. I just kind of, you know like interested, intrigued. And then once I did enough research, I found um, an organization that I'm still very glad that I went to named Going With Grace. And Mm. um, that really, really brought me into my passion and really brought me into seeing, you know, this end of life, grief, death, work, these systems Mm. of um, just so distant so distant from what we all understand it's so removed from our awareness our understandings our education if I had a death doula if I had more guidance as I was helping my mother pass I would have made different choices Mm. Um, and for me I was really really passionate and continue to be very passionate about just our societal relationship to the end of life for so long, these topics pre-pandemic have been taboo, or we leave it to the institutions and bless them. We need them. We need all of these parts to help us navigate. But um, something that we all experience that is inevitable is something that is so far removed from our understanding. So it is really extraordinary. First of all, I'm very sorry to hear about the death of your mom that 2018 is not so very long ago. So I know that that's um, still relatively fresh. And it sounds like you had the experience that many people do. And I often sort of liken this to getting physical therapy. There's so many people that get, you know, blow out their knee or their elbow or whatever. And, and people generally talk about how important it was to have a guide because they wouldn't have known not to do this and not to do that or that they had to do this and they had to do more of that. And that when pain is bad pain and 
And then there's a very small percentage for whom just that process is so transformative that they go back to school and they become, you know, someone who helps other people recover from an injury. And I think about the folks that I speak to, there's many times the story is the experience was so transformative that I grew this other whole part of my life that now is with me all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it sounds like part of it was, you know, to know the things that you didn't know when you were going through your experience. Absolutely. I mean, it was shocking. It was life-changing. When I arrived to see my mother at that time, there was just a lot of miscommunication among the caregiver, among hospice, among all of these moving parts. And um, it was shocking to just see a body at the end of life and let alone your mother. And then it's very shocking um, to witness the body dying and all of the senses and all of the sounds and smells. And I mean, Mm. and this was in a home setting. And then it's like in the midst of crisis and tragedy and whatnot, there's so many other layers trying to contact family members. There's incarceration of trying to, you know, contact incarcerated family members. Um, There is also trying to contact the hospice nurse. And it's just like the way that the story went was extremely challenging and everything was kind of going wrong. You know, like the hospice um, uh, nurse couldn't arrive on time because, you know, these other stories. And then when the chaplain came, it's like there was a lot of trying to convert. And this is a very small town and I live in New York City, so it's just very different. Um, and even the funeral industry, like having to plan my mother's funeral alone and um, being upsold on things that later on through my death doula studies and really diving into all of this myself, I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's so many other choices. There's so many other ways. Like there's so much more I could have um, not even been prepared because I don't necessarily you know if people are always that prepared in these circumstances sometimes, but I know that there's so much that could have been helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know that when individuals have such life-changing traumatic just all the layers of these circumstances or stories that's really for me that's what's become the biggest fuel you know the biggest catalyst and the biggest um drive to really shake up these end of life um industries or just bring more education awareness and um and yeah that's that's what that really did for me and I think that's why I feel like it's a rite of passage it's um again nothing that I dreamed of doing growing up no god no you know you know it's like the same thing as you're saying I agree with you we come into these experiences with what we've experienced and what we've been taught right and unless and even if you have stood at the bedside of someone else who died you know many of the many of the things that are normal just like truly normal things that you just said like many people don't know that um, the Catherine Mannix, who's a palliative care specialist talks really beautifully about this. Um, but that the muscles in the throat as the body shuts down, begin mm-hmm. to slack, you, mm-hmm. you just lose muscle tension. Um, and that can cause what sounds like a, a deep moaning, a painful moan as the breath comes in and out, but it's not, 
even people who are not on painkillers um, have very relaxed bodies in that point of death. But I didn't know that. Right. I study all the psychology and all of the trauma that happens to the person who has been bereaved, but I hadn't really sat down and learned like what happens to a body when it dies, when I was sitting next to my father as he died, even though I had listened to many other people's stories, I hadn't put myself in that chair. I will tell you that it was a client who had really suffered with not knowing why his his brother, when his brother was dying, was making this seemingly painful noise. Had I not been told that, had I not had that conversation, had we not looked into that together, I don't know what that experience would have been like for me. So when I came back into the world after losing my mom so suddenly, mine was like, I know more than 98% of the people out there. And there were still some really basic, basic things that kept is kept sort of shrouded. It's kept almost like we're talking about something that's like private. We don't want people to know, except that bodies die. And that has some universality to it, which is the same thing that I talk about is bodies grieve. And that has some universality to it. Can you tell us about what death doula does? Of course. So death doulas, end of life doulas, midwives, there's, you know, a handful of different names that you can use. Um, it really is mirroring the birth doula movement. So folks that haven't heard of a birth doula, it's an individual that is helping um, the birthing process. And so that's exactly what death doulas do. They are non-medical supports and mm -hmm. it's for either the person that may be dying, the family that is caretaking, um, an individual that is in complete health and wants to prepare for the end of life. Um, an end of life doula or a death doula is really that person to come in and help you guide you through the process at whatever stage of the end of life that you're navigating, whether it's um, planning or after death or the actual dying experience. And a mm -hmm. lot of those roles can be emotional, maybe even physical, if they're helping you clean your house after a death or help navigate items, um, house taking, um, vigil sitting, or the emotional component, of course, is really being there, being that extra support as you are navigating these end of life systems, perhaps you're um, having to deal with hospitals and hospices, nursing homes, or even helping you through the funeral process. Or um, it could also be a spiritual approach as well, depending on the doula, because every individual is different. And because yeah. these end of life doulas are really such a, a new emergent field, um, because we have systems that you know are very demanding. And that's requiring um, us as humans and these very human experiences needing more time for the emotional components, more time for that additional layer of care that so many of us have not really experienced or need or want. You've had your experience with death. I've had mine. We could probably answer this as, you know, daughters, but what do you think it is that people find to be the most supportive or healing about having a doula with them in the process of a death? You know, I think it's the most simple component is just merely being there. Yeah. Just being there, offering compassion, empathy, love, just simply being there and being okay with 
what is coming from the other person. I think so often we are uncomfortable. This is very common, right? Um, mm -hmm. A loved one, a friend, a colleague, um, when they lose someone or something is happening in terms of someone maybe dying, we are at a loss of words. We don't know, we start fumbling. So we either become very avoidant and not really wanting to address, you know, maybe this loss that's happened or um, we, we just, that's one of the biggest things folks come to me for is I don't know how to be with someone that I love that mm -hmm. is experiencing this. So I think um, as individuals such as us or others that just can simply be with them and like the totality of their experience without needing to fix it, without needing to change anything, um, I have found has been the most powerful. Mm -hmm. And that also requires the individual, right, to be okay with witnessing the grief or witnessing the emotion or being uncomfortable with the other individual and their discomfort or whatever it may be. And I, I find that fascinating. This is something I find very fascinating is the most human and seemingly simple things that we could do for others. Um, we're so far removed from doing that, you know, like we're so far removed from our own feelings and our own emotions that it's very uncomfortable to witness someone else in theirs. And I can take this to even funerals. Um, this is something I find fascinating is my, my Laotian family, one mm. of the first funerals I went to, we wear white, we don't wear black. And there's so much grieving and we're, you know, we're going through the motions, the ceremonies, the rituals. Um, and after there's so much rejoicement, there's so much celebration, there's so much of that. And there's been other funerals that I've been to where I felt that it was very inappropriate if I were to cry. And I feel like that's very telling of um, a very death avoidant, grief illiterate culture. Mm -hmm. mm. And I'm thinking about, you know, sort of what you just described around what it is that humans need. We like need it to be witnessed. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what happens to us when we are witnessed? A question I ask people in therapy all the time is when, when they say, oh, well, I just wish, you know, he had broken up with me before Christmas. And maybe I have an idea of what they mean. Like, I, I get it. But I always ask this question because then what would have been able to happen or what would not have had to happen emotionally? Like it's either, I believe something good would have come out of that emotionally, or I wouldn't have had to feel something bad. <laughs> you have a sense of like, what is it about the witnessing that feels so valuable to people? You know, what I find fascinating is I think historically a lot. And I think about all through time when I think, I mean, that's been happening. Grief has been happening as long as we've been alive as humans and um, when I think about these rituals and rites and these practices, that's the biggest thing that most people did all across all our cultures, all Western, Eastern, all cultures, is that there was a bearing witness in these experiences. There's a communal element to these experiences. And I feel like just inherently, it's just human, that social need, that connective need. And I find what's fascinating now is that is the biggest thing that is kind of this elusive um, experience is to be really seen and witnessed. I work with a lot of millennials. I work with a lot of younger people, especially with technology. It is one of the hardest things in which for us to do is to be sane. Yeah. Often. It is, is crazy. It's, and that's what I'm saying is like, 
I want to see it as not even magical and I'm interested in maybe your psychological mm-hmm. understanding of it but for me I see it more of just like just innately human like throughout history we have been witnessed and held yeah. through community through others and I just think through our hyper individualistic society that we do exist in um, it's become foreign and distant and it's almost like we're needing to learn how to have that skill set again I can talk about mm-hmm. that where it's been difficult for me um, feeling like I need to do it myself feeling like I need to do it alone and scared you know I remember the first experiences of being witnessed in my yeah. it's it's it was overwhelming yeah. like I wanted to run you know I wanted to jump totally that happened, yeah. you know? that's right it's very uh-huh. exactly so and I'm curious if you see it another way. And that's just the way that I do see it. Is- well, it's, I think there's some words that have made their way into sort of like the ethos enough, like the general culture of death that maybe don't have a clear practical meaning. And, and witnessing is one of those. I have a very funny person who DMs me all the time. He's a man and he's in his late sixties, maybe early seventies now. And um, he'll be like, what the fuck does that mean? What do you mean witness? <laughs> like, okay, Megan, I'll do it. What does it mean? Sometimes I'm like, oh, will it be? And I'm like, I don't know. Do I know what it means? I think I know what it means when I'm on the receiving end. I do actual concrete treatments like EMDR and body-centered therapies with my clients. But a lot of what I do is I just say, you're doing great. It was always going to feel this bad. Keep going. Won't always feel this way. It makes sense that you're scared. It makes sense that you're angry. It makes sense you're confused. It makes sense you want to break things. It makes sense you want to run away totally. And I'm not going to tell you not to do any of those things because what the hell do I know? And the deeper I've gotten into the work, the more I really hold that to be true. So that's one answer that I have, which is like, I think witnessing is just like holding somebody's hand so that they can feel steady when the emotions are blowing through them at such a rate that they feel like they might blow away. And I know what it's like to be held that way. I have been held, God held that way by people and strangers, not, I mean, absolute strangers who have, I have a memoir coming out in some of my most unbelievably um, holy moments with humans were people who held me and witnessed me and maybe even ways that I couldn't witness myself in these really painful moments. The other thing that I think, and if we were having this conversation two years ago, I wouldn't have said any of these things, but I also think there is like something universally human. We can call it God or energy or namaste or whatever. But I think there are times where we have to send that out to people like little, like little electric plugs so that they can live through what they have to live through that actually they have to borrow off our life life force to stay alive because the emotions are blowing through them so heavy. And so when I think about witnessing, like I have a friend who's going to get some really hard news today at three o'clock and I moved things around on my calendar so that I can just have her in my mind and light a candle and send her energy. And that's new in my life. I grew up with organized religion that I liked some of the stories. I didn't like all the rules. I sometimes feel that in the forest, like, you know, I sometimes I have felt it at the badlands 
in the deepest possible way. And so I think sometimes witnessing is that. Absolutely. And everything you're naming and what you're talking about also makes me think, I don't know, this is just how my mind is, is culturally, like, why is this so elusive? Why is this so distant? And why is it that for me too, that's been my experience, just being with people and simply just being is that has been the most profound for individuals is just having that presence, witnessing them, bearing witness, being held. And like, there's no additional, you know, there's nothing else that you need to put on top of that. There's no other cherries. There's no other sprinkles. There's no other diagnoses. Like there's nothing that you need to do, but that. And I just think like, why is it? And I think about all of us that are working our jobs and taking care of our kids and doing all these things. It's like, there's not even the time for a little extra TLC. So I just think it's really important for individuals to also hear that is like how important it is and to encourage how transformative and helpful or whatever it may be to receive that. Cause as we yeah. both spoke on, as we both spoke on, on how difficult that is at first. And I share that sentiment with you too, of um, the strangers. I've had those experiences, like the most random experiences or like these serendipitous moments or these coincidences or magic, you know, whatever the words are that resonate with us um, to have those like life-changing moments. I had that happen two weeks ago in the most bizarre way at the pit of my grief um, because I recently had been navigating a, a breakup, but Mm. a person I have no idea you know it just happens like that sometimes when you're when you're in it and I hear you on the spirituality component I think that is something I personally do want to bring more of to the world as well um because I see nature as spirit I see Mm -hmm. like nature as a spiritual practice for me as well um and not that anyone has to have that, but I feel like for my life, that's always been a part of it. And I didn't grow up um, in organized religion by any means, but it's just within me that I have found my own forms of what prayer is. And those prayers of bringing mm-hmm. love to other people and well wishes to the world and these blessings. It's like, I too, I visualize that of wanting to really just spread that um, because this world we we need a giant hug we like, right like, that's well and especially I these I, days I love the way you're talking about first of all I just I also want to say I'm 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 not going to say I'm sorry about your breakup I want to say I'm honoring the energy of the breakup right and and the reminder that grief is a reaction to loss so that it can you know it can be something like someone dying and that at least people call us and text us, but grief is a reaction to loss and the amount of loss that people are having to tolerate without room. You know, my son today, he was like, I'm going on a field trip. Like this was the first field trip he'd had. And he's in fifth grade. Like normally, you know, you go to three field trips a year and I was like, where are you going? And, you know, he's going to like a music center that we go to all the time, but he's really excited about it. And I'm, I'm thinking, and so, you know, the absence of those field trips isn't necessarily a concrete loss that he's been experiencing. I felt the like little loss of his childhood this morning, like 
Uh, and also the duality of that, that holding in, in the excitement of he's doing something good and also grief and loss are present. And I think part of the reason the work and the discussions are so important is that is the way it is that we think good things should feel good. And that when you have loss in your life is particularly profound loss, your good will always have a little bit of hanginess. That doesn't mean mm. that you're doing it wrong or that it's sullied or made bad. It's just the reality of it. That if you lose your mom when you're 20 and you get married when you're 30, you're going to feel the tang of her not there on that day. And I've said this a couple of times, every conversation I've ever had is about loss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's at the root of our humanity. So anytime you are talking, it's, you know, and every conversation that we've ever had that's about loss is about love, which is at the root of our humanity. When I hear about the concept of a death duel, it makes me think of ancient traditions. It makes me think mm -hmm. of cultures that where the death was in the home and doors were thrown open. So being able to figure out the way in which you as a human can avail yourself so that you don't have to feel isolated and that you don't have to feel in disconnection. Do you have a sense, like, do you keep things in the little bulletin board of your mind of like, God, when I get a chance, I want to advocate for this sort of change. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the concrete boots on the ground, holding hand, witnessing work that needs to happen. But damn, we got to come back to some of this other stuff. My mind is busy. <laughs> my mind is on <laughs> overload. I have so many docs in my computer. Love <laughs> it. All the things. And that's the thing is when I really came into this, it just was very, I think, purely and passionately. And that's been driving this and um, really starting where I could, right? It's just like online within community. And then the community um started rippling and doing one-to-one -one and then working with corporate organizations and bringing some education and again because I am um so hyper aware of the individual need for all of us to be tended to because the way I see it is when we are tended we can tend to someone else if we can't care for ourselves how can we really care for each other and that is the yeah. biggest thing and I think again like a lot of what we've been talking about these things of avoidance or discomfort with others and their losses how much has that individual been tended to with their losses and their grief you know it's just really interesting so I would really love to continue to like encourage individuals if they can find any kind of accessibility even if it's within a friendship um, a family member someone that they can learn how to cultivate those um, I don't want to say skills but these openings and for me though I am just thinking since end of life uh, doulas and some of these grief workers are outside of a lot of these systems, yeah. non-medical oftentimes, um, non-mental health professionals in those fields, non-hospice workers, not, you know, and some of them are like, mind you, um, outside of this, I really feel that what we see for a lot of us on this side is a lot of the issues within the systems, right? And we're coming in to fill in these gaps. However, this is something that I'm really excited to continue to talk to you about as a mental health professional, as a psychotherapist, is how can we really bridge all these forms of care together or the ways in which that we can see it? I think there's a huge uprise as well, where traditionally it's like, we need to have all of these certifications and we need to do it. And I don't know if you've been yeah. noticing this from like younger generations of like, 
F the certification. Yeah. <laughs> we just need yeah. to go in. Yeah. But, you know, fire blazing. And for me, I believe in balance, right? I believe in some middle grounds in some ways because everyone serves a role and I don't see it as all one way and every individual is different and every individual could potentially benefit from so many forms of care. Um, in terms of like advocacy and whatnot on my end, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of shifting up these end of life systems. It's a lot of like uh, trying to have folks prioritize and not just prioritize but value care we value a lot of other things in this society this capitalistic society that will go out and spend hundreds of dollars for eyelashes or hundreds of dollars for things you know and it's very hard for us to have to go in and I'm sure you've experienced this of having to go in and receive that other form of care that you know heart care spirit care mental health care um but yes, Megan, I mean, I can have a list of things I'm very <laughs> interested in, in terms of advocacy change um, and whatnot, and it's all connected to me. So I'd love to kind of hear your perspective as a professional mental health um, individual and how you're seeing all of this play out. I love this conversation and I, because it's really making me think, and it is echoing some of the, some of the tension I have for myself, because I am, you know, I'm one of those people who's got like a bunch of degrees and certifications and some of those were done so that I would have access, right? Some of those were like the keys to the kingdom so that I can um, have a license and my clients can get reimbursement and blah. And so there's a part of me that wants to say that it doesn't matter how you come into the work and how you accept. I don't think I believe that. I think that because I'm trained in trauma, because trauma is an event or a series of events that happens to someone that then creates meaning inside their body. And it is held with the five senses. It's held inside the physical system and it can cause so much physical distress that actually, to me, it feels like do not operate heavy machinery without a license. And you need to know when you're in front of heavy machinery and you need to admit you don't have a license. I do have sort of a, a, a place of grace, which is like healing comes in these extraordinary ways. And often the closet gets messier before it gets cleaner. And I, as a therapist, really understand that you know, part of the reason I'm a therapist is that I have like a curious mind and I like to read and I like to talk. Many of the teachers that I work with now are intuitive teachers. You know, probably what they know has been handed down across generations um, in ways that they would never be able to teach it or explain it. So I think I straddle this space where what I say is there are multiple ways to heal. After my mom died, I spent some time in an inpatient facility. And one of the things they use there is equine therapy. And I, and this is who I am as a person. I was like, fuck equine therapy. I grew up with horses, like horses are pain in the ass. I don't like horses. And there were dogs also. And people are like dogs. And I was like, you know what? I, I had animals in my life. I'm just like not jamming with the animals. And I walked up to this equine there like, all right, I'll do it. Like, cause I'm required. And then I had this like really magical experience. And that, that again, I think the horse brought to me as an invitation and eventually I just yielded to it. So 
I think there's two pieces. There's one of like, how do we broaden the cultural understanding of what healing looks like? I know I don't have other people's answers. I just really, truly, really deeply believe they can find them. And if they come to me and say like, I'm going to this thing in Sedona, it's Reiki and, and stones, and we're going to walk on coals. I, what I'm going to, what they're going to hear from me is like amazing. I can't wait to hear what this is like for you. Really. The only line is that I would like people to be able to distinguish. And when I say people, I mean, every human to be able to distinguish what trauma is and when we're looking at trauma and what the treatments for trauma are and to send people to those, you know, it is the correct and appropriate response to loss. And it is not a pathology or a problem. So every part of me is like, go to a coach, go to a shaman, go to your hairdresser, go to your bartender, go to your mother, go to a book, go to a tree, go to the badlands, go to a running, all of it. When you have symptoms that are physical and doing, you know, energy trapped in your body, go to a person who knows how to do that. And I just would like people to be able to distinguish between the two. Yeah. And that's what I see a lot too, because I am very much in, you know, more of these spiritual spaces or healing spaces and, um, I just feel so often it's too much of sides. I think as Ellen once has said, there's a lot of people that are like, I don't know, pointy and then like round, but we can come together. And that's my thing. I think there's too much of this, like all or nothing. You have to all be in, you know, these professional industries or you have to only be, you know, outside of those industries. And I feel like the irony is, is like, I think there's a deep need and desire to have more of this spiritual, like holistic care. And we exist within systems that produces symptoms that need deep care and understanding. And I think that's, what's really interesting. And I think that we're not quite there yet. Cause I think we want to kind of always have a team aside. And it, for me, at least I see it a lot in these different industries where I don't see there's enough integration of Whatever modalities work for you. I I really love Anderson Cooper's new podcast. I really deeply love it, but it is problematic and it's problematic because he has traumatic loss and I am not sure he's aware of that. There's an episode with BJ Miller, who is also another grief expert. And BJ asks Anderson about his brother. Does he have positive Anderson lost his brother who was he was 19, his brother was 21, his brother died by suicide in front of his mother. And, and BJ Miller, this expert says, you know, do you have these positive, can you remember your brother and all the stuff you did together? And Anderson says, no, I really just always picture him jumping off this balcony. And that's the definition of trauma. Trauma is when something bad happens and you only have bad stuff after, (laughs) you know, that's a loose definition. And the only reason that worries me is that people listening are going to hear, here's a guy who is still deeply mourning his brother and also can't remember anything good about him. So that must be normal and okay. Instead of, there are some folks out there that can help you strip some of that paint so that you can remember playing on the beach with your brother who you deeply loved. 
And I think that that's just right, is how can we get people to these other places? How can we get out of this constant re-traumatized state, this, this regulation as you've been speaking on? And the fact even that so many of us don't understand trauma or trauma, I'm nodding my head because I just think of how many of us today are existing like that with our losses. How many of us every day are thinking about, you know, having the PTSD, having the flashbacks, having that. And that's not knowing that PTSD. We're on a loop, you know, my mind just goes into all of these systems and ways and how can it all just blend talking to about the studies and the PhDs, it's like the fear from that. And what we are conditioned to believe is um, uh, accredited and whatnot. And then the folks on the other end of like fearing the systems and the people within it, it's like, I'm seeing it from both sides, you know, fear of like needing to um, be accredited, validated, you know, all of those things. And then also the fear of like, I don't know, feeling harmed by those individuals, feeling harmed by the system. So it's like, there's so much fear everywhere. You know? <laughs> like, today yeah. I'm seeing this outburst of all of these grief folks and, you know, coaches and all of the, you know, all of these things. It's just like, in my mind, I just think like, where's this going though? You know, cause that's some of my fears. Like ultimately we want to of service to other people or ultimately want to be very helpful to people ultimately like if that is your intentions you know and I think a lot about it where it's just so rapid fire that like the slowness and the mindfulness and the education or the actual understanding to reduce this harm is so important and I think a lot about this in a lot of these fields as well intended as many of us are whether um, within the systems or outside the systems, it's just like, how can we really be able to like navigate this in like a very mindful place? I, I, I don't know. I feel a certain kind of way about just how fast people are putting titles and whatnot. And this is something I personally have struggled with myself Mm -hmm. where, you know, I want to be as mindful as possible and also honor lived experience, but you you know, there's a big gray area for me, you know, and it's like, where can we really come together with this? I think anytime we're talking about something that is in a helping field, you got to remember that there's like a macro component, right? Which is like the policies and the, how do we get it funded and who's doing the work and what are their degrees? And then there's the micro element. People come into my office often and they will say, well, I haven't, I haven't really done my grief work. It's been 10 years. And I'm like, great, let's go going. First of all, I know they've done some grief work. You can't go 10 years without doing it. But also I don't really believe that there's one way to heal. And so part of the reason I get really mental about the diagnoses is like, what are you, why are you putting a timeline on anything? Like people come to their time of healing when they're ready and seek out teachers. And that is my belief. So seek out whoever feels like they are going to guide you. Now that can get, scary and dicey when people are teaching from a place of pain. So I think there's a little bit of it. Again, if we go back into the body, how does this feel for you? Does this feel safe for you? Are they guiding you in a way that's safe? Are you regulated? 
And then also being able to have somewhere an increase in just core education around grief and loss. The way that we have a core education that is available in multiple books around what puberty likes in most looks like in most bodies for adolescents. We can just like hand that to a kid and be like, go read that in the corner, come back and ask me some questions. Then we'll have the conversation about sex, which is also important. Then we'll have a conversation about like what happens when you don't fall into these categories of the genders that they're describing. We're just going to use this as the base and then we're going to bounce off of it. But we don't even have that in grief and loss. We don't have a base, a little pamphlet of like, hey, memory loss is really common because here's what's going on with your hippocampus. Here's what's going on with your hypothalamus. Here's what's, you know, are you cold all the time? Turns out that is actually really normal in grief and loss to have temperature dysregulation because here's what's going on in your brain. We could do that. We just don't do it. If we felt confident that somebody was like sort of covering almost like the safety base like the, the core, we grieve with our bodies that. So when I get on my soapbox, that's my soapbox. It's like, I don't really want to write that curriculum, but I will. There are better neuroscientists out there. I do a quick and dirty one all the time for people. And they're like, wait a minute, what, what did you just say? Like, that's normal. And I didn't know that. And oh my God, that's been going on for years. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, your brain got hit with a frying pan when this went down. And, and I'm not just talking about when your mother died. I'm also talking about when you got divorced. I'm also talking about when you moved across the country, talking about when you birthed twins, when you discovered that your dad had Alzheimer's, there's a million times in our lives. It's not just somebody died. It's any time we are thrust into something that we didn't expect. I love this conversation. I I think we'll be having it forever. I think the field is really lucky to have you both as a practitioner Mm -hmm. and as someone who is really looking to sort of heal the systems themselves, bring them together with less fear and more intention and more collaboration. It's really resonating on some other things in the back of my mind too. So I'm really grateful for for this conversation. If people want to continue that. Hey, let's talk big picture. Or they're really interested in having you guide them and do some work with them in their really heart heavy space. What's the best way for them to be in touch with you, get to know more about your work? How do they do that? Um, You can check out my website. It's B-A-C-I-I.co, Fossey.co. You can email me. You can DM me on Instagram. Um, I'm around, please reach out. These are conversations I'd love to have and expand. And um, it's not just me. I'd love to be with others that want to shake up the way in which things have been. So we can have so many more perspectives and modalities and just more care overall. So thank you so much for having me, Megan. I really am so grateful. It's a blessing and a wish that this disruption and this is it has to happen, right? Like we didn't run around training people a lot during, it's not like, oh, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm training to become a social worker because you know all the grief and loss during the pandemic. So I think we are going to have to have other people carry buckets, you know, past two I think that's why it's so great to see both of us where it's like there can be just different perspectives and layers of care all the way around. So we're here. This was such a lovely conversation. I feel really lucky to have had it. No, thank you so much. Okay, so keep in touch and we'll keep in touch. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, folks, before you go, remember that 
you can go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review, stars and in writing. It's so helpful in getting the podcast out so that more eyes and ears get to uh, know about it. And if you are disappointed or don't love something that's going on in the podcast, feel free to DM me. I'm still learning and I take the criticisms and critiques really seriously. I read all of them and I really would love to hear from you. Thanks. Thank mm-hmm. you.